Hello, you're listening to another episode of I'm Creating a National Food Service. And I say another episode because it's getting to the point where I'm forgetting which episode we're on, even though now I come to think of it, it's only seven. It's all just a homogenous blob of endless talking about food justice, which I hope is how you lovely listeners experience it as well. Just homogenous blob of talking. Um... Now I come to think of it, maybe I should put that on the podcast description. Uh, nevertheless, though, it seems that 77 of you have clicked subscribe. So thank you. We've now surpassed three quarters of 100 subscribers. Woohoo! Um, so if you do like the show, uh, give it a review somewhere. Um, and that would be fab. And that will help spread the word about the campaign. And it'll also feed my ego. Um, this week, we've got an interview with someone who I really should have interviewed a long time ago, because she is the person who kickstarted this entire campaign. Um, Marsha Smith, she's an academic in Nottingham, also doing a PhD in Coventry, um, looking at social eating spaces and food justice. And she's academic to advisor to Food Hall. She also founded Super Kitchen, uh, which started off as just one social eating space but is now a network all over Nottingham and she wants to scale it to the whole country and she came up to Food Hall and brought her idea of creating such a network um, and that is what got Louis and later on me and everyone else in the team thinking about this idea of what we're calling a national food service. So Marsha was really interesting to talk to, she's got so much to say. And slightly frustratingly, after I turned the mic off and we were walking back into town, um, we kept talking and she said so much more uh, fantastic stuff that I didn't get on the mic. Uh, so it's it's just almost like a, you guys don't get the good stuff. You just get the beginning of it. <laughs> but I hope you enjoy that. Uh, this is Marsha Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, hang on. Uh, stop the theme tune. Um, I totally forgot to say we're doing an event. I think I mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again uh, midway through the theme tune. 15th of July in London, New Speak House, um, starting from 6.30. Um, it's free. There's food. We'll talk about the campaign. You can um, put in your own ideas when we open up the discussion to the floor and... Um, yeah, make it along if you're in London. If you're in Glasgow, um, that's okay. Uh, you don't need to come. I won't be offended. <laughs> See you there. Here's the theme tune again. Hi, my name's Marcia Smith and I'm a visiting fellow at Nottingham Trent University and I'm doing some research on social eating at Coventry University. Brilliant. Okay, so can you tell me a bit about your research? So I am uh, a social eating researcher. I'm a sociologist, but I've got links into sort of geography, anthropology and social marketing through my research. Um, I'm in year two of my PhD, but that follows like a really sort of long period of about since 2010 working in the charitable sector setting up, managing, steering, running, funding social eating spaces in the East Midlands region of the UK. Um, And my research is really looking at social eating, which is very familiar to us. So we understand like the wedding feast or the Sunday dinner, for example, or the birthday party. You know, they're all forms of social eating. And we really understand that social eating is this enormously powerful social engine. Um, but when we look at new forms of social eating initiative that are emerging really sort of at the, t- at the current time, um, the lens of anthropology hasn't really been applied to them. Um, they tend to come under 
the sort of charitable food poverty, food austerity type understanding. So my research on social eating initiatives is looking at them in a different way, looking at them in terms of anthropology. That's that's interesting because I hadn't really connected this idea of like wedding feasts and birthday parties with social eating, but I suppose it is kind of the same thing. So what exactly, how is social eating different from say community cafes, food banks, all that kind of stuff? Okay, so again this is part of my research which is really describing and defining and distinguishing social eating initiatives. So as I've said before, we know that social eating more generally is you know it's ubiquitous in society like you know the family meal the sunday dinner for example social eating initiatives are almost like a modified form of the family meal so they are quite distinct from community cafes and food banks in the sense that food banks are no pay Mm -hmm. they're free meals they are the free ingredients for meals and they distribute individualised food parcels and it positions the user or recipient of those things as relatively passive because they're there just because they don't really have any choice. Social eating initiatives are low pay initiatives and they sit within you know, a number of other low pay initiatives like community pantries, community cafes in some ways, um, stuff like food hall which again is like a hybrid space as well as being a social eating space. Um, and the thing that makes social eating initiatives distinctive is that the ones that I'm studying in East Midlands is that they are just open from it's meals at meal times, so they have limited opening hours. They have a limited menu, mainly made from surpluses, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a low-cost initiative, so they're affordable, accessible meals in public. So really, in some ways, it's like the family meal transposed into a public setting. So it's not like community cafes, which tend to be open all the time or open more regularly having a number of things on a menu that you can go and choose from, almost like a cheap form of conventional cafe. So social eating initiatives are, they're just open at mealtimes, they have a limited choice, they're paid for, and they have a strong emphasis on sitting together and eating at a mealtime, like a family. And do they tend to reach out to, uh, could you run run one called Super Kitchen, or perhaps is it a network of lots of different ones? Yeah, so I set up Super Kitchen in 2013, Um, on the back of a couple of other projects that I'd set up called Secret Kitchen and then one called Family Cafe which were all early forms of social eating initiatives before I really sort of came to the full understanding of like what what the model was and why it could be replicated so I founded Super Kitchen in 2013 um, and that then became a network of social eating spaces particularly in Nottingham but also in Derbyshire Um, and then I left Super Kitchen to go back into academia and and begin more sort of thorough research about social eating initiatives and there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's happened within the network over the last few years and there's lots of groups that identify with the social eating model and there may not be super kitchens per se um, but now we've got a really sort of varied network of social eating spaces some of which are sort of still super kitchens but many of which aren't um, and what was your question again? I forgot <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember what was the stuff on, what was <laughs> the, the super what was, kitchen yeah so that was the, that was the original one um, but there's been lots of ones that have, have sort of modified from that but they yeah. all use this very basic sort of model of like a social eating initiative yeah and um to shift back to research briefly you said you're looking at this through um the lens of an- uh, anthropology anthropology yeah. all right um so tell me like what does that mean specifically well the issue at the moment and i guess it's something that i've also encountered when i was working in the charitable sector is that because of austerity and also because of growing understanding about the wastage of food, 
there is, it would seem that social elite initiatives are really there just to provide a cheap or free meal for people and use up food that would have otherwise been wasted. Now, that in, its, in itself, though, those aims are, are noble and they're important, but actually social eating initiatives are doing much more than feeding people. Mm-hmm. So they've got another huge sort of peripheral impact in terms of like people having places to hang out, so space and place-based stuff, and people being able to sit in... Um, a family atmosphere even if they might not necessarily want to talk to people people um, wanting to go to social eating initiatives because they don't want to do the washing up or they don't want to necessarily have a load of things that they've got to choose from from a menu a lot of social eating initiatives are in neighbourhoods so they're often to be walkable um, they're open at meal times and they're open regularly so people know that there's a bit of a rhythm if they go there that there'll be there'll be a meal mm. so there's lots of other things that are happening and the the framing of social eating initiatives as just really being concerned with providing you know cheap meals out of waste waste food and again I have a lot of issues with this idea about waste food um, doesn't really tell the full story or the full sort of impact of social eating initiatives and also what it does is it it sort of frames them as just being like the result of austerity policies and the whole idea about about trying to see social eating initiatives as through the lens of anthropology is there's a you know there's a massive amount of evidence through both the natural sciences and the social sciences you know and anthropology just being one this sociology is all sorts of other stuff that really say that eating in groups is really really important it's this really fundamental social mechanism yeah um and actually when we use the lens of anthropology to under it's called commensality is eating together in groups it's the academic term for eating together in groups commensality is an enormous engine of social cohesion um, and we can say that when we look at the bigger picture, so austerity and the wastage of food are two important aspects. But when we also look at the destructuration of the meal, which is the sort of diminishment of the significance of the shared meal. So there's a lot of anxieties that circulate about, you know, that the family meal isn't practiced as often. You know, people are working different schedules. There's fast food, there's convenience food. Mm-hmm. People aren't eating together so much anymore. And it, it seems that that would be some indicator of some wider societal breakdown. So there's, you know, a lot of people really understand and they privilege eating together in groups. They know it's something that they want to do, that they should be doing and that they think is important. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of evidence both ways, actually, to say whether really the family meal is diminishing or not. There's evidence both ways. But there's strong evidence across the board to say that it's important. So when we look at social eating initiatives in terms of commensality, we see that they are part of a much bigger social mechanism that isn't just to do with poor people. It's to do with everybody. And if you want to create resilient and vibrant social movements, you've got to make it, make the messaging as accessible as possible so lots of people can understand and feel familiarity with a need to eat together. But there's only a certain part of the population that would understand or feel familiarity with food insecurity, for example. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I mean, my own involvement in Food Hall, I think the reason I latched onto it is partly because I thought it was great, but also because I was lacking that consistent community. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm interested, what, what got you into all of this? Like, where did the interest with food start? Well, I think, really, my family is quite food My mum said my dad was a really big sort of like, you know, food person food was always really important to him and he liked everybody to eat together uh, and my mum and my mum's family have certainly been like jams and chutneys homemade breads <laughs> cakes you know, we're sort of that family where and I grew up in poverty um, and my mum um, 
was a really frugal cook, but she made sure that we ate very well. Um, and you know, it was when we were younger, we didn't. There wasn't really access to fast foods then, um, but we ate well. But we were on a very you know low budget. Um, and I think so. I've had lots of different types of experience, and I've eaten widely in places around the world, and you know, continue to have a sort of strong interest in food as a sort of social mechanism. But basically, I got into it because I was um, I was made redundant um, from a legal job I had, um, had six weeks off, and did a load of volunteering in community cafes around Nottingham. This was like two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, mm-hmm. um, and really enjoyed it. My brother-in-law and my sister were setting up a cafe in an area that I lived in that ran every Saturday lunchtime and it was just people could volunteer to cook for everybody and again I really enjoyed it and someone said oh Marsha can't you set up a cafe yeah and I thought oh do you know what like you know maybe I could do that but the area that I lived is just called Snenton it's just to the east of the city and at that point there wasn't anywhere to go for coffee or even have a cup of tea yeah. you have to really walk into town and I thought well there's lots of people walking into town to go for like four quick coffee maybe I could do something but what I knew I didn't want to do is I didn't want to like fry eggs all day and <laughs> just like work in like a greasy kitchen so I, I thought well what I'll do is I'll just make some food and then people can come and eat it or mm-hmm. not and actually just having a couple of things on the menu um was really popular so I just hired out a church hall I almost did like a pop-up cafe before pop-ups were really sort of well known and that started to spiral in terms of people wanted something after work so once a month we did a social evening and that again was really really busy and popular and then I came across um, a lot of friends who were experiencing then I had contact with children that were hungry and thirsty and you know I'm a a mum and I was just really horrified and upset actually um, it's not something I ever thought I'd see in the UK, although almost 10 years later, it's awful just to think how in bed this has become. But yeah. at the time, it was very shocking. And I realised that the way that I was doing that cafe was a very cheap and effective way of feeding large numbers of people. So I thought, well, maybe what I could do is swap it to an after-school thing and target children and families, which is what I did was family cafe. Main budget cost was food, and I found out about fair share, rang them, had a chat to them and just realised, oh, you know, they can send me food and it will really, I could do it within budget. So then I spent some time fundraising and set up this project called Family Cafe, um, which ran for a year and that was really the prototype of Super Kitchen. I'm just going to, um, so Fair Share is a food distribution yeah. network, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's the largest charitable food distribution network in the UK. Yeah, that's fantastic. So were you always using this surplus food? or, or did Not it initially. So I started using surplus food. Um, I mean, again, when I was a student, which is a real, well, I'm a student again now, but when I was initially a student, <laughs> very long time ago, like 20 odd years ago, um, I used to go in skips. Like I used to hang around with a, like a big bunch of sort of like punk, skateboarder, graffiti type yeah. hippie people, party people. And we used to regularly go in skips and get food because we were... We were skimmed, we were students, yeah, and yeah, yeah. there was so we used to go to the Marks and Spencer skip, and we used to eat so well. Um, and so I think I've certainly had the idea. I've experienced food poverty myself, or poverty myself again. Food poverty is poverty. So yeah, experienced poverty sure. as a child in lots of ways, but good food nonetheless. And then you know had quite a sort of mixed experience of eating in very nice places and then skip diving. Um, so I knew that there was food out there, but it was only when I got into contact with Fairshare that I realised that we could get sort of relatively regular volumes of food and the fact that they would deliver it. Um, and I knew that because I'd already been running Secret Kitchen and it was like, I'll cook whatever we've got, mm. it worked well with surplus because you don't always know what you're going to get or you don't know what you're going to get. So that it dovetailed into that, which then dovetailed into sort of 
understanding that this model of social eating could be something which could be scaled? Yeah, this is, this is what I'm thinking. So you have this idea, this could be all over the UK. Mm. And this is what over, well, not just Food Hall, but the National Food Service campaign we're thinking of as yeah. this idea of a National Food Service. Um, is, that, is that term yours? Did you come up with that? National Food Service? No, yeah. that's Louise and the Food Louise. Halls. You know, again, I've been in contact with them for the last few years. Um, I'm like a sort of semi-trustee at Food Hall. Mm. We haven't sort of formally incorporated it, but they sort of have that role with them. And I'm obviously really supportive of all the stuff they do. See them as an enormous, like, peer network, stuff that's happening in Sheffield. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the National Food Service is is really similar I think we have I mean I think I diverge sometimes with with Louis and Elliot and the other sort of people there that they see it as free at the point of entry almost mm. obviously mirroring the National Health Service but I would see it as low pay at the ent- at this at the sort of access point because because super, super kitchens what two two three quid a yeah, head yeah. anything from 150 to three pounds a head yeah um again with cheap meals for children and actually it's a low pay initiative but within that there are also no pay routes mm. to people so if they want to volunteer or they get referred or you, you can tell people kind of this they haven't got quite enough money that week you know people offer discretionary meals so there was again there's all there's flexibility within the network but the front end of it is that it's a low pay initiative um, yeah. and I think that's probably where I differ slightly with National Food Service although in principle I completely agree with it and I actually think as a as a sort of recognisable and really familiar and welcoming and sort of interesting campaign it's, it's I'm really really supportive of it but I mean I, I think that I would see it more like a prescription fee is if you need a prescription fee you pay a small prescription fee mm, and everybody pays yeah. that and that means that you don't pay £150 for your prescription everybody pays a, a, a low amount um, mm. but there is a method there is some financial exchange but again it's it deprioritizes it so again social eating initiatives there is financial exchange but it's not the most important aspect of it yeah but I sure. think it's very difficult for for groups to raise money and this is something which is really really common across the charitable sector is that it's often pushed and, and run and innovated by people that want to move away from this really neoliberalist economy which is primarily denoted by financial transaction and your worth really is whether you can afford to be involved or not um, but actually I think what happens is that we know that food does cost money even if it's coming from surplus you still have to pay for it to be stored and distributed people need to cook it you've got to pay for the fuel and what that tends yeah and what tends to happen then is that you've got a back end of your charity which is peddling like mad to try to raise money Mm -hmm. um and i think it's better to be to have a you know a portion of your income coming from the meals and just having a low set price Mm -hmm. um and again people often want to pay for a meal they want to make a contribution and it just means that that you know a chunk of your money is coming through your till because often I find that people then have to almost become fundraisers and they have to do all of this other stuff to try to keep that free thing at the front. But also I think it's moving away from this understanding that no pay is often people that lack agency, low pay is often that people want to be involved. And I think it's about trying to capture a bigger part of the market in inverted commas right. to think about how we can widely engage and people feel much more comfortable. My experience is offering a low pay meal. What would you think of the idea of a national... This is somewhat idealistic, but what would you think of the idea of a national food service that was state-supported? Would, you th- would that be good or bad in your book? My ideal situation, I think, would be that 
the corporate bodies who are you know have huge sway within the food system that they subsidize out of their own profits the the running costs basic running costs of a, you know a whole national um, network of social eating initiatives which again adhere to that basic model but there's a huge amount of flexibility around that about what times you want to open or whether you want to open more than once a week or just once a month or how you set up and run that space but I think if you adhere to that basic model that it's a low pay meal time that uses surplus as much as possible and maybe local gluts and other stuff like that I, th- I would like to see um, supermarkets paying for the basic running of those by issuing block grants to all social eating spaces and ideally I would like to see a national tax system that you pay you know however much it is per year a really relatively small amount but en masse and that also funds because again like the NHS is funded through our taxes and then we pay as low pay when we actually need to access it so I would like to see supermarkets recognising that that last mile of food that the food last mile that the food takes to the user it's got enormous social value that that is enormously impactful beyond just the fact that it might be a customer using up their food. Yeah. Uh, and for them to understand that funneling it through this really narrow funnel, it's got to be like poor people are recognising that actually everybody needs to eat together in groups. It's a public health issue. We've got huge amounts of surplus that still go uncollected. The most, The best way to deal with those surpluses is to not produce them in the first place, but also we will always produce surpluses in the modern industrial system, just as we always produce surpluses in an agricultural culture. The most important issue is for us to eat them, and everybody should be eating them as a civic responsibility to make sure that no good food is thrown away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that we, I would like to see corporate subsidisation and national taxation, and through those things that mean that, that anybody who wanted to could you know, access you know, low-cost social eating meal at least once a week and perhaps to have the evidence further down the line that just like eating five fruit and veg a day is good for your health, that maybe eating a social eating space is also good for your health. So again, we shift it over into a public health opportunity, a civic opportunity to make sure no good food is thrown away, but also when we're looking at things like climate change, climate breakdown, eating together in groups and careful stewardship of food, water and energy are going to become increasingly important. Yeah, so actually, this is, a, this is a model of eating for the future, not just for the here and now. Uh, and again, if we think about the past, we had the National Kitchen and, and the British Restaurant, um, which Bryce Evans was at that um, last event in Sheffield, um, that Festival of the Mind, talking about the history of the National Kitchen. Mm. No, we had over a thousand places in the UK, Nottingham had three of them, where you could anyone could go and access a really, really cheap meal. So again, we've got historical precedent, pubs and social clubs, working man's clubs are really, those place and space-based things have really shifted and diminished, but there was still this enormous need for people to congregate. So to me, it's a really sensible way of maybe dealing with a number of issues, but also thinking constructively and practically about how we could live into the future in a way which is much more equitable and resourceful and much more sociable. So are the, camp- the, the way the campaign's currently thinking about this is we're, on the one side, we're promoting this idea of a national food service and getting support for that and but then the other part of the campaign is formulating our own blueprint for what we think that should look like and currently we're kind of drawing on rather than thinking of creating a system afresh what we're kind of thinking of doing is almost creating a network joining up these 
different currently existing organisations yeah. and then also you know supporting the creation of new ones. Um, do you think that that sort of way of doing it where there's it's decentralised and there's these grassroots organisations is good or? Yes and I think that's really where when we look to what's actually happening you know this idea that government shouldn't be passing its responsibility to the charitable sector to make sure that people are fed but the fact is is that they have and they've been doing that for the last 10 years and they are not only uninterested in supporting really other than beyond lip service charitable groups Mm. but they are creating policies which are actively harming you know massive numbers of people in this country so waiting for government to do something uh, this centralised thing is it's not only not happening at the moment, the opposite is happening. And if we actually look at the empirical evidence, all the innovation has actually come, one, from the corporate sector wanting to cut their own um, waste. Again, believe it or not, we sort of see these evil empires, but there are huge amounts of people that work within these organisations that are just like everyone else. They don't like seeing food being thrown away. They're worried about the environment, let alone higher up the chain when you sort of think about whether it's worthwhile to, you know, in terms of money to throw food away. Um, But actually, the innovation has happened at the level of locals, particularly within cities. So the empirical evidence is that's where it's happening anyway. Um, So I would like to see, you know, local and regional networks. And that's how I see National Food Service. Again, I think it's right. There's a huge amount already happening. Mm. You don't have to invent this from scratch. And again, eating together in groups is something that's really familiar to us. It's not a, a sort of really abstract or theoretical thing that people have got to get their heads around. People naturally gravitate towards eating together in groups. So I think it's looking at it's linking local networks, but I think it would be good to have some sort of, in the longer term, some national way of paying for it. But one thing I was, I'm interested in pursuing, um, and I wonder whether Sheffield, again, might be a really good place for this, is to work with local any large-scale organisation that, that works within the Sheffield postcode. Could we have... You know, we're looking for some funding to to sort of explore this idea, mm. like Sheffield City Council, for example. Anything is in your pay packet at the end of the month that's ninety nine p or less, gets rounded up and collated and then donated to social eating spaces within the S, within the Sheffield area. Okay. So every single month we have a um, a pot of money that is that is given to to expand social eating initiatives. So. Is you that something that is happening as well in Nottingham while you're trying? No, it's not at the moment. Again, it's something that I'm interested in. Well, I've got, you know, lots of things that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna you know, you know, you have these sort of ideas. Oh, but I think what what I'm interested in is it's postcode based. So, it, to me, that's a really easy way of people seeing. It's a local taxation almost. Yeah. But you, the money gets spent with it. You raise it within your Sheffield postcode area, and it gets spent within your lips. And and again, then having a bigger network of places, people will think, well, I. I help pay for that, so maybe I could go for my my dinner there. Sure. And again, what what food hall and other social eating initiatives need? They need customers. So my con- but my concern with that is that if you've got um, a postcode that's quite a deprived area, then surely they'd be able to like, raise less money, and then they'd have less money to spend on social eating. Whereas if you had a richer postcode, they'd have more money to spend on social eating, even though arguably they'd need it less. I think. Um, Again, if we, it depends what you mean. If you mean, if you mean, need it less. One is that everybody needs to eat together in groups, and social sure. isolation is much as as much as a pernicious issue as food insecurity. I mean, like but food think, po- food poverty wise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, say for example, the Nottingham postcode that would cover all that money would get redistributed back through the network. So all of the social eating spaces across the city, many of which are in deprived areas, would receive a portion of that money. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was almost a way of testing 
how do we have like almost like a local or city or based taxation system that local people pay for out of their wages and then local people can use those spaces to just yeah. see whether that way because again if, if we could get that working then you think well actually then in Sheffield in Derby in Lincolnshire in, in Lincoln in Nottingham in Leeds in Leicester in Birmingham suddenly you've got portions of money coming in to support the social needs initiatives that are in that area and, and to I, think about growing those networks so again in those areas where you know people need it in terms of food insecurity food yeah. poverty that there'd be more opportunity to access those things because what most yeah. groups struggle with is funding you yeah, know they are absolutely. just it's, people are scratching around for the most basic things and yeah, you know, yeah. put people like yourself you know again I did for years put huge amounts of voluntary time into things and it's unsustainable over the longer term because it's exhausting after five or six years to still be doing some of those things and again it puts people away from what they want to do is they want to hang out people they want to feed people they want to social stuff and they get turned in they have to then start writing funding bids and then they have to become fundraisers and you know it often pulls people away from doing some of the stuff they want to do and I think that a lot of people if it was if it's a quid or 99p or less even by pay package month I'm not going to notice 49p one month or like 13p one month but 60p one month I'm not going to notice that but if you aggregate that across a city that's thousands of pounds every month coming in which yeah. could be given as a direct grant split across just the social internet for them to spend on what they needed to do um, and I think it would maybe entice people to go into them more because they would know that their money yeah and they could just like come for your meal yeah absolutely and, and um, we, we've talked a lot about um, about this idea that if you contribute to if you feel like you contribute to something then you feel like you have a say in it and you're more likely to engage absolutely and this is where you know, National Food Services, you're completely right in this. One is like the compelling campaign, the national vision that people can move towards, that people think, oh yeah, you know, that's something, you know, people are very protective of the NHS, something like National Food Service, something people might feel protective of and feel invested in. But again, just like the NHS is decentralised in lots of ways between regional health or health authorities of various bodies, again, you would have autonomy within regions to think about how that that funded money, for example, was spent. Yeah. Um, so I think that there is those two things can coexist: the sort of national compelling vision and the local and regional sort of de- um, decentralised networks. And again, lots of stuff like you know peer to peer thinking about as a think tank what works well, what doesn't well. So you know groups can sort of share information and share best practices. I've got just one final question, mm. which is. Uh, with all of your knowledge and your academic research, if you could give advice to other uh, food justice organisations, what would that advice be? How could they improve what they're doing? I think what I've learned over the last almost 10 years is it's a really fine balance between having a really strong sense of social justice and caring most people that move towards doing the things do that because they care but there is a really strong element to being pragmatic and i think traditionally that's been encouraged by getting businesses to think more like sorry getting charities to think more like businesses and i don't really think that that has worked i think really thinking in terms of knowledge share is really really important mm-hmm. um prototyping and testing and not being afraid for things to fail really thinking about user-shaped, like really trying to involve user groups at every stage of the thing to create compelling and well-grounded actions that really do serve the sorts of communities that, that we say that we want to engage with. Um, and I think that's really the main thing is that, you know, and also it's possible. We've got all the resources that we need already. 
It's about maybe just rearranging them in ways. And it's also about engaging much more broadly beyond the, our, the concern that we may have been set up to respond to. It's thinking, how can we sort of sell this idea to a broader audience? And again, my thing is, through my PhD and my own person, it's about participation. And that's where I see social eating initiatives of having the most traction in the long term, mm-hmm. is that everybody needs to eat together in groups. You know, everybody needs hangout spaces. Our society thrives when people feel connected to one another. We've got a huge amount of food that's going to waste and, you know, here's a pragmatic model that could feed people more efficiently. So it's about how do we get as many people on board as possible and particularly to move away from this waste food for poor people narrative, which is is demeaning. I don't think it's... I don't think it really tells the truth about the complexity about why surpluses are created in modern society. But also necessarily, almost in trying to help the poor people, we make it just to do with them. And so people think, well, I could donate something to the food bank, but they don't think about how they could actually participate. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. Um, Marcia, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers.